Everything changes like the desert wind Here she comes and then she's gone again And I'm just a traveler on this earth Showing my heart behind the pocket of my shirt. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And as you know now, there's no hot political talk here You're going to have to go somewhere else it's stories and only stories here on Our American Stories. And we love music. You heard our hour on Robert Plant, his two trips to America, the Delta Blues first, and then Nashville and beyond, getting back in touch with his roots, gospel songs and Americana. And today, we're getting into and digging into the life of an American music producer, and we've brought a, a few of those lies to you as well, Rick Rubens. And now someone who I think is, and I think he's going to almost blush when we say this, but I think it's true, joining the ranks of Rick uh, with some of the artists. I know. Oh, no. (laughs) I hate doing that to you. Uh, But it's Dave Cobb, who we we read about in the Wall Street Journal. I'm a big music fan, so I've known Dave's Dave's work and been following the artists he's been uh, getting behind and, and just getting the best out of, which I think is what producers or great directors do is they get the best performance out of an artist and actually it's what coaches do in the end and we love talking about coaches john wooden and coach shashevsky and it's all about pulling the god-given talent out of and the potential out of a human being and dave cobb your artist uh, chris stapleton jason isbell sturgill simpson lake street drive and thanks for joining us uh, thank you guys i appreciate it man it you, too nice Hey, you bet. And uh, hey, look, before we start, we always like to talk to everybody on our show about their life, about their childhood in particular, and how it shaped who you are and what you do. Talk about that if you could with us, Dave. Well, I grew up, uh, I'm from Savannah, Georgia, and uh, I grew up in Pentecostal church. My grandmother was a a minister, so we always had, uh, in in our church, we did pretty much hymnal-based music and you know, pedal steel, piano, guitar, and and uh, and bass, and you know, kind of a choir singing the whole time. And and uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was into Black Sabbath and ACDC and Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and pretty much anything but how I grew up. And I had to move to California and really learn about country music way late in life, and, and to to kind of discover where you came from in the first place. You know, you bet. So you bet. And you uh, you actually moved away from the South. Uh, talk about that. I, I did at 27. At 27, I moved. I was in a band, and and my band's record deal was kind of getting stuck, and I felt like you know I really felt a calling to be in the studio, and I felt like California was a place to go. So I ran all the way to California to produce rock records. And when I got out to California at 27, I met uh, Shooter Jennings, Waylon Jennings' son, and we produced uh, his first record, and and that wound up being my first hit country record. And next thing you know, I'm uh, through him. I met Jamie Johnson, and was starting to. I did a couple songs in his first record, about seven on the second record, and just kind of kept coming to Nashville after that. So eventually, I, I kind of really discovered great country music through the Jennings. You know, it was it was really him educating me, playing me the right records, and then I discovered all the stuff I didn't know about growing up. You know, and talk about some talk talk about some of those right records. Talk about some of the music you may have passed over when you were young, but as you got older, you went, "My goodness, this is really good." Well, the gateway record for me was uh, this concept record called White Mansions that an English guy, Paul Kennelly, wrote um, about the American Civil War. And uh, it had uh, Glenn Johns, my favorite English producer, produce the record. And he had Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. And when I heard that record, it was my 
gateway into country music, which was really kind of a back way to get into it. And then I discovered, you know, how great Waylon was, and I started buying every Waylon record I could, and I discovered all the offshoots of that, everybody else, all his contemporaries, you know, Jerry Reed, and started diving into everything with that, and, you know, Glenn Campbell, and started going crazy on Glenn Campbell, and just, I, I, I kept kind of digging and digging and digging, and then, you know, it's 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 been, you know, kind of like a, a rebirth musically to hear all these great country records that I never knew about. I mean, in our house, we had, you know, the the poppiest of the pop country records that we had, I and mean, it was a Barbara Mandrell record or Kenny Rogers, but I didn't know about Johnny Paycheck, you know? Right. So it, it's, uh, you know, or even Marty Robbins, you know, so it's, it's, it's continual learning for me. It's kind of this, this huge wealth of music that I'm still digging into and I'm always excited about. You know, I, you know it struck me about country. I mean, as you can tell from my accent, we broadcast here from Oxford, Mississippi, but I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, right by New York City, and I was a huge Springsteen fan. And when he started dipping into the river, when he started dipping into Drive All Night, and he was trying desperately in Nebraska, I think, to become a country artist, to become Johnny Cash almost. I, you hear it. You hear it clear as day he's in the country. You know, you hear it. You hear it. You can hear. You can tell he was a big Christopherson fan. You bet. You just hear it in the lyrics. And yeah, he's, he's digging from the same well of that classic American music, you know, whether it be country or roots or whatever you want to call it he definitely knew what was going on you know, the first the, the first time folks heard him at the beacon theater come out alone and i don't know what compelled him to do this i think he just needed to shed the band and say i want folks to hear my songs and i wanted to hear the character driven nature of the narratives because i don't think a lot of people had understood that so many of his songs were driven by the narrative of a character that he was playing in the song which is a true country a real true and country tradition talk about that if you could well, you know, I, I think with country, it all begins with a song. I mean, it's, it's always less about the, the track than it is the, 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 the lyrics themselves. The lyrics are always number one. And I think maybe country has the highest regard, you know, with, with, with lyrics. I mean, you know, rock and roll, you can go, I want to rock and roll all night, party every day, and people love it, and they feel it. But country, you've got to have a derivative, you got to have a, a narrative, you know. It's more about the narrative than it is about the party. And, you know, maybe they party in it too, but there's definitely a story. There's always a link, and I think... The song craft is, is very high. It's very high form song craft. So, you know, they're, they're great country songs that take you a while to digest and figure out all the lyrics. So, you know, I think maybe as I'm getting older, I, I love country music more and more because I need more than just a melody. I need it all, you know, at this point. Yeah, and obviously the music then serves the song rather than the other way around. And that's a, a very different thing yeah. than listening to a Zeppelin song where the, the lyric, uh, you know, the lyric's important, but clearly the track is what snaps you into the world of Led Zeppelin. Oh, absolutely. You think about Led Zeppelin, you think of you know any hit, you know, you think of the guitar riff first, you know what I mean? Oh, I, I get it. And uh, Dave, hold the thought. We're coming up against a break. We're talking to Dave Cobb, producer extraordinaire. I know he's just, he can't, hand, he can't handle me saying that. He's humble, he's working with great artists, and he always wants to throw the credit on them. But my goodness, they speak highly of him. When we come back, more about Dave's life, and then the art of being a producer. Here on Our American Stories. We'll be back after these messages. Throwing shadows in the dark. And the memories keep on turning. To the rhythm of a prayer.
I am Most of you could care less And the rest don't give a damn You might say special just When you take a look at me I'm everything you've ever been Ever wanna be My game is the winner Take off So I'm subject to a fall I ain't never been a loser I ain't never gonna be I'm like running in the rain You don't mess around with me This is Lee Habib And we're listening to Waylon Jennings And we did that because, well Dave Cobb said it was Waylon Who took him back to the music he loved or knew when he was a kid, or actually didn't know. He knew pop country, but he didn't know this country, what I like to call real roots country. And Americana is what some people call it. And now let's pick up where we left off. How do you get into the world of being a producer? What, what, what led you to that space as opposed to being the player or being the writer? And what, what do you bring? What is the talent you bring to the equation that, that artists say, I got to work with Cobb? Well, first of all, I think you lie your way into it because <laughs> I don't know if there's a producer school, right. you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I was in bands and we worked with producers and I watched them work and I thought, man, that's the life, you know. It's, you know, you get to kind of, it's, it's basically a director of music, you know. You you help pick the songs, you help, uh, you, you're kind of a, a friend, a therapist, you know, you're an encourager. You know, and sometimes, some instances, you're the writer, you know, you're an artist with them or you're you know, the musician on the record. So there's kind of a lot of hats and it really, it really changes every single project. You know, there's no set in stone method for, for, for my job. It's kind of, you, you know, you learn as you go and make it up as you go. Um, yep. but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for people to understand what a producer is. And I really honestly don't understand either. <laughs> Good. And then hopefully you never figure it out. I think that's the key. Uh, because then yeah. you'll start probably having a cookie cutter approach, which I think is the death of heart. And the death of a great production mind. I know it's true in acting and directing. Uh, boy, you yeah. start you start repeating yourself. Agreed. It's over. Yeah, I agree. Well, and, you know, I don't think I don't think one suit fits all either. You know, everything everything's got to change. Everything's got to evolve. And you know, me personally, I would get really bored if I went in there and copied every technique I used on every record. It would be it wouldn't be a very fun job. Then it would become work. I like for it to be this you know kid's imagination land where you walk in and everything's possible and there's no limits and and um i don't don't like rules too much you know well so this uh recently you know a couple of grammys best country album chris stapleton's the traveler it's just exquisite it's it it feels like a record david it feels like a record you always knew but never heard before uh it feels like it's almost a part of the dna of the culture already and that's such a hard thing to stumble on how how did the how did that record come to be how did you get to know chris well, I, I was working with this band, Rival Sons, uh, from California, in, while I was living in Los Angeles, and they played me Steel Drivers, uh, Chris, Chris Stapleton's previous band, through an iPhone, and man, it just shut me down. I mean, you just don't hear voices like that, you know? I'm always drawn to that, whether it be, you know, Greg Allman or Rod Stewart, that kind of raspy, you know, powerhouse kind of voice. Yep. And uh, so, you know, he was on my radar then, and it took me years to actually get a chance to work with him uh, his manager called and said he wanted to meet he'd heard uh Sturgill simpson album and wanted to get together so uh we got together and we pretty much talked about guitars and cars and just hit it off and it felt like you know the same way you you, you said that the record feels like a you know, record you've always had or heard i felt like he was a friend that I'd always had you know 
And so then we went in the studio, and, and somehow the label was really amazing and, and, and let us go wild in the studio and really trusted us. And I think it started off, you know, well, let's cut six songs and see how it goes. And when the time we had booked for the six songs uh, was done, we'd, we'd finished the whole record. And so the label came by and heard it and were completely supportive and just really, you know, it was, it was an amazing time uh, where it just felt like we were goofing off and having fun and we weren't working. It was just pure art and pure you know, heart and soul into these days. And, and, um, and we came out with, with the record that you hear now. You know, there's a, there's a piece or a part of the Wall Street Journal article that talked about your love of first takes and spur-of-the-moment performances. And we had done an hour on Frank Sinatra. And it was interesting. Oh, Sin- Sinatra liked to go into the studio, we learned, from him himself, once, twice the most. And this is back when there were 70 or 80 set orchestras in a room, yeah. and they were union orchestras. And after that, he'd leave. He'd say, I don't want to do a fifth take or a sixth take. Talk about that. Well, I think I, think, uh, I, think I can get away with that because of the caliber of these, art, these artists and their voices, you know, and their, and their songwriting. You know, if, it was, if, if I didn't have Chris Stapleton singing, it, it may take 50 takes and never be as good, you know? Right. Or Sturgill or Isbell or any of these people. I mean, they're, they're really talented and they're really good. So I think... I'm really fortunate to have worked with people that just already have a God-given talent. And and you're right. And after you go back past a few takes with them, I mean, their 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 minds on something else. They all have really active imaginations and, and have creative minds. So you got to capture it while they're really excited about it. Yeah, capture Otherwise, the spirit. Yeah, miss it. You know. So, but I do think I have a huge advantage because those guys are just so naturally talented. You know, they they allow they allow us to get away with doing one or two takes. You know. You bet. You know, we were doing uh, an hour on Cash, and we dug up some of the rare interview footage that we could, and archival footage of Cash talking to Ruben, and Ruben talking to Cash, and them talking about each other. And what was remarkable was the, was the degree to which Cash trusted Ruben, and Ruben right. trusted Cash. And it just didn't sound like the hour we're getting ready for, which is George Martin, which was a very different kind of record producer. Uh, and it was much more technical, a lot of time in the studio. We're, we're, we're spending some particular time on Strawberry Fields and that entire Sgt. Pepper's record, which is a, that's a, it's a, it's a production piece and very yeah, intricate. Yeah, well, George, George is one of my heroes for sure. I mean, you, you say it's a lot of time, but if you really think about how much time they took to make those records, it wasn't very long. You know, like I was the first Beatles records was, was done in a day. Yeah. You know, and the other ones weren't, you know, a couple of weeks each and you know, maybe a month. You know, uh, it's really relative, you know, especially now people spend months on records. So true. Years on records, you know. So true. So even, even that was, I think George is every bit as applicable, you know, as, as maybe he's, maybe he's one of the best, he is probably the best producer in history. I mean, the guy came in, he was a musician. He was the A&R. He designed the group. He, he, uh, you know, got creative with the band. He played on the records. He arranged strings on the records. So he, he kind of fits the bill as the ultimate producer, really. Yeah, we dug up a great clip where it's McCartney talking about how he had written yesterday, and he wanted to write it for the young girls. They had different audiences they tried to appeal to with their songs. And he said, George comes in and says, oh, I hear strings on that. And he goes, we're a rock and roll band. George, we don't, we don't do strings. Well, he went back, did the arrangement, came back, and they fell in love with the orchestral arrangement to yesterday and i can't imagine the song without that arrangement dave oh i know i mean i think I, I think what was so great about george martin is that he realized how to milk every single note and every single uh phrase out with emotion i mean he really knew how to work the emotion and i think that's what a great producer does he, you know when you hear mccartney sing that you feel it you just feel every ounce of it you know 
And I think that's that's what he he does, you know, probably better than anybody ever, who ever lived, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about another example of your sort of no frills and spontaneous live like production in the band you produce Lake Street Drive. Tell us this story of what they're looking for and how you help them achieve it. Well, I like I like Lake Street Dive because of uh, Rachel. Uh, when I when I heard, obviously all of them are crazy talented and their musicianship is insane. That's the other reason I liked them. Um, but she just had a voice. I always look for a voice in a singer, and she has just such a classic voice. She has one of those voices that are so familiar. It feels like you know a great you've never heard, but you feel like you've heard it your whole life. So that's what attracted me to them. But you know they were cut much the way Traveler was cut, all in one room. Even the drums in the same room. The no headphones. And um, and it was much like a Sinatra session, the same way you described that. It was Sinatra with with the orchestra. Well, it was her with the band in one room, and no headphones, and just you know, just an incredible talent. All of them, everybody in that band is the highest degree of talent. You know, so that's what drew me to them. It was a, it was a blast. You know, it was a blast. It was nice to step into their world for a little while. Well, when we come back, we'll talk to Dave about well music. More on the production front and what's coming up in the future. And we'll go out with George Martin's Strawberry Fields and the Beatles' Strawberry Fields. More with Dave Cobb after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And limousines, and the grass seemed so much greener. All we wanted was to get there fast, so we packed up everything we had, running on hope and a tank of gas like dreams ain't just for dreamers. We couldn't wait to leave that life behind, trying to find salvation in that. Limit sign and one of those LA nights when the stars come out. Oh, the stars come out and shine. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Dave Cobb. The Wall Street Journal profiled his work. We've been following it. We love music here on Our American Stories. And between Jason Isbell and Chris Stapleton, while these are two of our favorite singer-songwriters coming up, you hear the bump music. That's Lucinda Williams. I don't think there's a better writer in the business. And wanted to pick up with the business of the business as we continue our conversation. Do you think something's happening? I mean, it, you know, my sister's a professional writer. Her husband produced all kinds of big hip-hop records, Naughty by Nature and, and Queen Latifah's uh-huh. records. And, and he, they all, they both, you, in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s, people both hated labels but loved labels. And then one day the labels sort of, at least for a lot of parts of the, uh, of the dimension of music, started to lose their influence with the sort of YouTubization of music and the, and the downloads. But the A&R guy... Is just so important, and and we did an hour on Ahmet Ertegen and what a life he had. Yeah, one of my and heroes, Atlantic. Yeah, what, one, one of my heroes. What 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 is an, you know what is an artist without an A and R guy? I mean, and without a producer. I mean, how does the artist today, who's not hooked to or connected with someone who's going to develop them, give them the wingspan to fly, connect them with the great song if they're not writers? And in country, so often we connect. You know, your job is to connect sometimes a song to an artist. Not always, but sometimes. Talk about the, the, the labels. What's happening now in the industry? Is there sort of a well, rebirth of the label? I, I, feel like, I feel like it's a really good time with record labels. I mean, I, I have my own imprint with Electra Records, and, um, and I got it because I sat with everybody at Atlantic in New York. Atlanta is, Atlantic and Electra you know, are, are the mm-hmm. same entity. And yep. uh, I did a deal with them because they sat down and they want lifestyle art. They want to find these, these Springsteens or these artists at last, you know, that Aretha Franklin's, you know, Led Zeppelin's, they're, they're more interested in the, um, in kind of the art of, of music. And, and they think, you know, when you make these real honest records, they're going to outlive, you know, a two second pop song. So I feel like there's a lot of that kind of opening up. I mean, Traveler was made for completely artistic purposes and it's sold really well. So I think everybody's kind of looking and so did, so did Sturgill Simpson's Metamodern and so did Jason Isbell, uh, something more than free and southeastern so i think there's a, a wide open lane for artists in to to live to coexist with with major labels and indie labels so but i do think labels are great you know in a lot of ways because you, you need support you need help you know if you're the artist you can't possibly worry about you know making sure you get all these contracts in and making sure you do all the press and get all the radio lined up and it's just too much to handle. So I think they can be really helpful in that, in that degree. And they can also, you know, be great in guiding you to somebody you didn't know. Maybe they hook you up with a producer that inspires the, the band to go a certain way or enhances the band. So I, I think, I think we're at a good time with labels. Maybe we're back where it was in the early seventies where Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and, and, and all these artists were on major labels and had tons of success with it. So I think, I think maybe we're back there when people are kind of gravitating towards something, towards something real and something tangible. And, uh, and the sales numbers are there to support it. I think, I think we have a good alignment with labels now. Well, and I also think when you have a song like Cover Me Up by Jason Isbell, that's not going to become a number one song. But it's going to be the reason that's why you follow him down. You're going to follow him down to the ends of the earth. Because he writes music yeah. that so deeply connects with you that when he plays it in concert, you can't hear a pin drop. People are moving. Yeah. And I love concerts when they're still. And that's when you know you've done something really specific uh, as a writer and a performer. Talk about that. 
Well, I, I think, you know, when I did Southeastern with, with Isbell, I mean, I was such a huge fan of his prior. Um, that's when I, I, that's when I really started feeling the sea change. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, he did it through 30 Tigers on his own label and, and people just came out for it. And people, and I went to the shows and it was the same thing. Like you said, you could hear a pin drop when he, when he did those acoustic songs. Usually you got to go over to a show and bash people's faces off with loud up tempo songs, yep. get the crowd going. But it was quite the opposite. I mean, when he when he played those acoustic songs, everybody felt like it was a sacred moment and and just observed and participated. And it was just this really beautiful moment in music that I think I think maybe he was the first artist to really kind of open this lane that seems to exist now. You know, I think he was a guy. I think when people on Music Row were writing about you know tailgates, he comes out and he writes about you know cancer and just makes everybody think twice lyrically i think he raised the bar lyrically yeah and i think he he really did a lot of good for uh for for nashville and you know songwriting in general no doubt you know there's a, we're about to feature a song every once in a while we just get under the the the, the head of our hood of a song and we did the nick of time last week bonnie Raitt had written about how that song came oh, yeah. to be and it's such a the lyrics are just and they're hers she wrote that as you know um, and we, we, right. we love digging under a song, and we're about to be doing next week. A friend of mine sent me a link to Daryl Mobley sitting in an artist roundtable with, uh, with Kenny Chesney, and Daryl sang uh-huh. and performed There Goes My Life. And it's just, wow. it is just an unbelievable song. And from the very first lyric to the second to the third verse, you're just, you're, you're, you're stunned at the, at the writing and the story it tells. Um, talk about, talk about, you know, the discovery of a great song and what that's like. I mean, it's funny. Isbel's a really great example. When we were doing Southeastern, when he came in with the song Elephant, I mean, when you hear him sing it, uh, you just heard the song. And I didn't want anything around it, so I put him I put him in, in my kitchen in my house. I didn't want anybody influencing him. I wanted you to hear the kind of purity of where the song came from. And as he was singing, it was coming to the speakers, and it felt like a classic record I'd never bought or heard. And it just it drew me in, and we all got you know chills and bring a tear to your eye that the lyrics in that song. And so then after that, we added a couple overdubs to kind of fill it out. But that's one of those moments where, and somebody told me that I think I stole this from Rick Rubin. Uh, you know, you know it's right when it feels like a record, mm-hmm. and some things feel like a great song, and some things feel good. But then sometimes you'll hear something come the first time, and it just feels like a record. And that song felt like a record. I'd never, you know, that I always had, but. I couldn't put, couldn't place it, so you know, I, it's it's it's. I'm, I feel really fortunate to know people like uh, like Jason because you know it's it makes it great when you walk in the studio and they have these songs done. You know, it makes my job really easy. Oh yeah, it does. You know, I pretty much concentrate on where to order dinner at that point. You know? Yep. So uh, yeah, it's 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 rare to hear these caliber of songs, but thank God we have a few people out there that are doing it now. And we do. And let's go out. Listening to Jason Isbell and the song that Dave Cobb was just talking about, Elephant. She got sick, never hear the end of it. She don't have the spirit for that now. We just drink our drinks and laugh out loud. Bitch about the weekend crowd and try to Somehow 
Sandy, you crack me up. Seagram's in a coffee cup. Sharecropper eyes and the hair almost all gone. She was drunk, she made cancer jokes. Made up her own doctor's notes. Surrounded by her family, I saw that she was dying alone. Heart on the run Keeps a hand on the gun You can't trust anyone I was so sure What I needed was more Tried to shoot out the sun Days when we Somebody knew I was meant for someone. So, girl, leave your boots by the bed. We ain't leaving this room. Cover me up and know you're enough to use me for good. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Jason Isbell, one of the artists that Dave Cobb produces, great singer-songwriter Chris Stapleton, and we're talking about music, the business of show business, and the radio and music business, and radio has been an integral part of this. They're pushing this music out of the out of the pop country format. I never thought that would happen, and it is, and it's great. And Rick Rubin may have started it all with Deaf American, and then he's worked with Johnny Cash. You know, Rubin had said something interesting. He had said, well, he'd wanted to get Cash comfortable. He'd wanted to get him playing just the guitar while he sang again, just as he had done with Neil Diamond's. Just stunning. Rick Rubin, I mean, I'm not a big Neil Diamond fan. I can't take that that record off the out of the CD holder. It's just so damn good. And he said, I just don't want to mess it up. My job is to not mess it up and get the connection between the song and the performer in its purest form with these guys. Uh, is there a piece of you that worries about messing it up with your artists? Ever? Uh, not not really, because I think I think these people were, were in such alignment uh, in personal taste, you know? And, uh, and it is one of those things where I try to, I think the same way. I try not to mess it up. I try to find a way to the simplest path to making the song resonate and feel. So I, I don't worry about that too much. Actually, to be honest with you, I think when we go in the studio, we don't worry about a lot, but trying to, you know, make the artist sound like themselves and the best version of themselves. So That's great. I think if we do that, maybe we'll be all right. I wanted to talk to you about two songs from Southern Family. The first titled, You Are My Sunshine by Morgan Stapleton. Yeah. 
Uh, talk about it and the why behind it. Why did you and Morgan choose this song? It seems like an obvious choice, but perhaps an overlooked one because of it. Talk about that song. Well, I didn't, I didn't choose the song. Morgan and Chris uh, Stapleton chose the song, and they told me they wanted to do that song for Southern Family when I told them about the, the impetus of the idea. And, and I, I kind of literally laughed at them. I said, come on, you're my sunshine. That's like the lowest, you know. It's like doing, you know, wish we wish you a Merry Christmas, you know, or Amazing Grace. It's, it's something that you've done a million times. And uh, anyway, they, I play with them sometimes on guitar live, and they were doing a show, and I saw it in the set. Like, we're playing Sunshine tonight, and it's a G, just follow along with us. So I go up on stage, and they start playing it, and then they play it like they do on the record, and it, not, it just shut me down, and I had to apologize profusely. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they reinvented the song. The only thing that's the same as the lyrics, really, and just the power that you have when they sing together is, is mesmerizing, and, and her voice you know, on that song is so pure. And um, so I had to apologize, and, and I found out later that when they first got together, their first place had no furniture, and they picked up a guitar, and they started singing that song pretty much the way it is now so it's always meant something to them it's their song and chris uh, uh stapleton actually has you're my sunshine on the inside of his wedding ring so it's real personal to them and it also kind of represents you know a song that every every mother had sung to their child you know when they were children so it's, it's part of the fabric of american culture i think that song so there's a lot of meanings to it and i think the way they do it they kind of they made it their own they turned it upside down and it's definitely uh just a real standout, you know, so powerful, so real. I'm in love with the way, they the way they did it. Well, let's take a listen to what we pulled off of YouTube. Stapleton singing You Are My Sunshine. I guess that's what you mean by making a song their own. And thanks for sharing with us how that song came to be and the meaning and the personal meaning it had to them and what they taught you. You know, we were doing uh, this this hour on Robert Plant and particularly his sort of resurgence with the Band of Joy. And there's this live BBC production. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he he performs with Buddy Miller and all these great Nashville cats. And and the, the concert closes with him saying... I want to sing a song that I've always wanted to sing that says everything. And a cappella, he starts with that beautiful gospel nugget, I bid you good night. Then a few others join. Then a stage pull, curtain pulls back, gospel choir, no musicians playing, just the vocals. And it stunned so many people when we played it that here's Robert Plant, the bad boy of rock and roll, 
returning to his roots and singing a gospel song of all things. Talk about that. Well, that's where it all comes from, you know. I mean, I think Southern music, gospel, soul, country, bluegrass, folk, I think um, that's the birthplace of rock and roll. And obviously that's where he bit, he bit you know, uh, all his all his kind of influences from. So it makes perfect sense to me. I yep. mean, it's kind of going back to the source about as far as you can go. That's that's exactly what he he had talked about. He had talked about you know at, at you know thirty one or thirty two. John Bonham dies. There's Led Zeppelin, and he said, "What am I going to do next? I don't want to be the head of a Led Zeppelin cover band." And he wandered, yeah. and then suddenly he 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 links forces with Alison Krauss, and he says, "This is what I need to do the rest of my life is explore these deep roots." The roots that inspired me to, to, to play and sing music to begin with. You've taken over RCA Studio A for folks who don't know about it. Tell us about this place, David, as we close out, what it means to you and how does it feel in any way to be a part of such a heritage? I mean, RCA was, was built in 65, this, this specific studio and they recorded Elvis Presley. They recorded Dolly Parton. Jolene was cut there. Uh, Waylon Jennings, all the, about, I think he did 11 records there. He did Daddy to Walk the Line there. And they did Eddie Arnold, Make the World Go Away. It's such a historic place. It's kind of like a, like a, a, a temple that's been preserved. And, uh, and it's just such a power. I think the Monkees recorded Daydream Believer there. Mm. I mean, half of my record collection growing up was recorded in this room. And, uh, and it's, it's been preserved. And it's, it's one of the few studios that, are are around like it today it's it's a massive place i mean it it, it wouldn't even be financially feasible to build something like this now but you walk in this place and it's like a vintage guitar it's got a song in it and it's very inspiring and we actually cut uh chris stapleton traveler there and we wanted to go there chris had the idea because it was going to be torn down it was saved the last minute but uh we thought we were the last people to record there and it's such an amazing thing that it's still around and now it's national trust so hopefully it'll be around forever but um yeah, it's a real powerful place to be in. It's uh, it's 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 incredible to have this opportunity to be there. I'm very humbled by the opportunity to be there. So hopefully, I don't mess the history of it up. Hopefully, it keeps going. You know. Well, it's in good hands, Dave, and we appreciate you joining us here in our American Stories. Keep up the great work. Keep inspiring us. I think music does. You know, I think C.K. Chesterton had said, "When we sing, we pray twice," and I think that's uh, so true. I like that. And I'm going to steal that. That's good. <laughs> it's all yours, and thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Thanks so much. Y'all have a great day. You take bet. Care. You take care. And I think the only thing to do after an interview like that is shut up and let the singers sing and the musicians play. And this is Chris Stapleton, Tennessee Whiskey, off his latest record. Used to spend my nights out in the Liquor was the only love I'd known But you rescued me from reaching for the bottom And brought me back The edge too far gone Your Whiskey, you're a sweet strawberry wine. You're as warm as a glass of 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell great music stories, love stories, sports stories, you name it, we cover it. And every now and then we do public policy, too, when policy affects ordinary citizens, or as we like to say it, where the policy hits the pavement. And when it comes to regulating businesses, we can agree that, of course, we need regulation, but at what cost and when is it just crazy? And joining us today are two guests, Ahmad Zatari, an entrepreneur in Austin, Texas, and Rob Henneke from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And thanks, both of you, for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be on. You bet. And and, and Ahmad, we want to talk to you first, because always we want to bring the personal and then ultimately later merge it with the policy. And before we get into your business story, tell us a little bit about your family, your childhood, and your journey uh, to Austin. How did you get there? Um, yeah, I was uh, I, I was born in uh, in Lebanon um, to a uh, uh, my dad is a uh, is an eye doctor uh, and my mom is an English teacher and I am uh, one out of uh, four siblings um, and um, yeah I uh, uh, I guess I did well in school and uh, was able to apply to university here and. Uh, got in in pursuit of the American dream, and uh, yeah. And you're Lebanese, and I'm Lebanese, and just so folks know, there are 3 million Americans of Lebanese origin, and there are 4.5 million Lebanese in Lebanon. So uh, we we Lebanese love this country, and and, uh, tell us now what brings you to Austin and why you're on the air right now with us. Well, yeah, so uh, we um, we are here because we want to talk about the uh, short-term rental ordinances that the city of Austin has enacted uh, um, starting this year, uh, which we feel are um, um, bombarding our constitutional rights. Uh, so, like you said, you know, we Lebanese are very entrepreneurial, and uh, pursuing, you know, coming to the U.S was something that I, uh, that I wanted to do because, you know, it was, uh, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't the easy, easy thing to do to come here, uh, uh, being, being on your own and uh, working on yourself and making it by, by yourself here. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. And uh, finally, what I did, uh, I, was, I was sort of uh, doing... Um, um, I was, you know, I was, I was in the uh, startup tech um, uh, here in Austin. I, uh, I was working for a small company for three years, and we were developing some technology for the oil industry. And when that went down, when the oil uh, prices went down, so did the, uh, you know, so did some, uh, so, so did our prospects, essentially. Uh, so last year, uh, I lost my job. Uh, at the startup company, which which is part of which is part of the startup life. Yep. Um, so what I what I decided to do was I mean I looked at the assets that I had and you know I was I had just bought a house I just moved uh, to a house uh, close close to the office uh, uh, and I decided well I can't afford that anymore um, might as well uh, use it uh, to make up some of the income loss that I just incurred. And so what you did in essence is you moved into a cheaper place as a rental. And you went ahead That's and right. went on Air, you know, Airbnb, and That's like right. so many people are doing in this country, it's just like Uber for our houses. That's it. 
And you that's said, let me that's... see if I can make money from that to supplement my family's income while I go through this transition period as an entrepreneur. Simple as can be. What happens What happens next after you go and decide to do this, Ahmad? Well, you know, the funny thing is, you know, you don't start making money. There's a break-even point that I haven't even, I haven't even gotten, to, gotten to that point yet, right? Because as you can imagine, right before you have to put something on the market and invite people in, you know, you have, if you have four bedrooms, now you've got to buy all the furniture for that. So there was a, there was a certain level of investment that I had to put into the house yep. to put it on that website. So I, I, I borrowed a lot of money at the point where I didn't have a job. I uh, took a huge risk. Uh, and I, I looked at the regulations at the point, at that point, which was uh, somewhat last, uh, around last year, uh, June, July of last year. And, um, you know, uh, I had to go through a licensing process, which I applied to and got. Uh, so, I, and the license that I applied for was a non-owner occupied, meaning I would not be o- occupying the premises while, uh, while renting that out. Um, so I had a, it's called a type two license here in Austin. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is the, uh, this is, you know, uh, these licenses, these, this type specifically has been, uh, under a lot of contention lately. Um, and yeah, I, I think the core, the, the core of regulation is targeted towards that, but you know, it's also on, it's also for other, uh, regulations. So, uh, to your point, the Airbnb, is essentially just a platform. It's a website platform that allows you to go in, put in pictures of your home. Uh, they check on your credentials, so they make sure that you are who you are. And then what you do is uh, you start booking your house um, on the weekends, the weekdays. You can change the prices however you like. There's a lot of different things you can do there. Uh, but then the, uh, the best thing about the, uh, that website in specific is the review process. Uh, because they have a review process, it pushes people to be on their best behavior. Yep. So, in in my opinion, it's a very it's a self policing um, site. I mean, you're always going to have the odd duck here and there, um, but in in the majority, um, it's a self policing uh, it's a self policing thing. Um, well, Ahmad, hold that Ahmad, hold that thought for just a minute because we're going to come back. We're coming up against a break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what the city of Austin did, how the rules keep shifting. We're going to bring Rob in to talk about the public policy dimension of this and what's really going on behind the scenes legally, who's protecting who, who's trying to protect turf and business, because so often that's what's going on here. We love telling these stories because they're coming to a town near you. And if you've used Uber in the past or you've used Airbnb, these are terrific tools. And if anything, I feel safer getting in an Uber than I do in a cab where I don't know who the heck the guy is. There are no reviews. And half the hotels I go to, I see a picture on the website. A lot of them don't have reviews. And when we come back, again, we're going to be joined, rejoined by Ahmad Zakari, an entrepreneur in Austin, Texas, who ran afoul or ran into never-changing and ever-changing rules in the city of Austin as it relates to his home and who he can rent it to. We'll also be joined by Rob Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we re- we are rejoined by Ahmad Zatari, 
an entrepreneur in Austin, Texas, and Rob Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And when we left off, Ahmad had, well, he had fallen on some tough times, as entrepreneurs do. A business, well, it just ran out of capital, which happens when you run into tough times. And orders aren't processed. There's not cash to keep things going. And so he did what entrepreneurs do. He improvised. And he moved into a cheaper place. He had just bought a new home, furnished that place up so he could rent it, put it on Airbnb, which is like a swap meet for people who want to rent a house and people who want to be in a home. And it's a terrific hit all over this world, not just this country. And then, well, things get a little sideways on Ahmad because the city of Austin, well, it starts giving you a hard time. And not just you, Ahmad, but it just turns out anyone who's thinking of doing what you're doing. Talk about that. That's right. Well, they they uh, they enacted regulations um, that made it really hard for us to. Uh, I mean, so for, for example, we have to police now uh, our tenants. We have to know whether they're family members or not, and we have to keep keep a roster of every single member. That's something they don't ask of hotel uh, of the hotel industry. And then we have to make sure they don't get out of the house and be outside of the house uh, more than six at a time. And if they're family members or not, I mean, there's, there's some really weird regulations in there. And it makes it extremely hard for us to be within the code uh, and, 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 to, and to be within, within uh, you know, within, to, to, to act within the law. Yeah, it makes it hard for you, Ahmad, to comply. And it also exactly. says here that it, the law is being amended to ban such rentals entirely by 2022. And I want to bring in Rob Henneke here. Rob, what's going on here? I smell a rat. Uh, who's the rat? Well, the rat is is a government looking for a solution that doesn't have a problem. You know, the vacation rentals are nothing new. For, for decades and decades, you know, individuals and have been renting out extra properties to make revenue. And now you have, in attacking our clients' private property rights, the city of Austin deciding that uh, Mr. Zatari and our other clients being able to make full use of the economic value of their property is something that's wrong and should be regulated out, out of existence. Well, it's interesting. This is a techie town. I mean, Silicon Valley maybe num- is number one. I don't think maybe it is. But my goodness, Austin may be number two. So it's a techie town. And this isn't, uh, this isn't something that's just happened with Airbnb. This is happening in Uber, too. What's going on with this town as it relates to the government? Why aren't they on the side of these technical innovations? Well, you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing the, the old guard protectionism and, and, you know, liberal stronghold that Austin is running headfirst head into the next generation of technology and entrepreneurship. I mean, Austin is where Twitter started. It's where we're now internationally known for South by Southwest and, and Formula One and other types of, of major events. And yet um, there seems to be more focus from the local government to you know, regulate business and individual activity than to fix the potholes in the street or to deal with the real situations that are driving up the high cost of living here in Austin. You know, the way that this regulation is written is a direct attack on our clients' um, 
being able to afford to stay and live here in Austin. And many, many, you know, middle-class families like the Zataris have to do everything they can because of the high taxes uh, that are otherwise forcing them to go move elsewhere. You bet. And to what extent, Rob, do we have protectionism protectionism going on here? I mean, in the case of Uber, there's a powerful taxi cartel in the city. And when it comes to Airbnb, there's the hotel industry that might at some point start to see this as a competitive threat. You know, it's a different it's a different type of protectionism at issue in this short-term rental issue because really you see I don't think that you see competition in the same types of markets between short-term rentals and hotels. Right. They they cater to different clientels, different types of of locations. If you want to be, you know, downtown and hip Austin, you know, you're a whole different type of client than I would be with two small kids and a wife that may want to be in a more quiet neighborhood. Right. But what you're seeing at issue in this ordinance, it's the the neighborhood council in Austin that have always been the stronghold of political power and political pressure. They're the ones that have crafted this ordinance to where they get to keep their short-term rentals, but they get to prohibit anyone else from doing the same. Uh So that's what they've gone to the city and said, let us keep making money off of our property but if someone that's not from our neighborhood uh, wants to do the same thing with the same activity, then, you know, get rid of our competition so we can have a, a stronghold on the mon- uh, a monopoly on the market. Well, there are a bunch of rules in the Austin City Council's, you know, rulemaking here that are just, you know, you start to look at them, Rob, and you go, somebody's protecting somebody. And I think you've cleared that up. It's not the whole hotel industry. It's the short-term rental uh, folks who have a have a have a you know property to protect of their own, and it's a clash of property rights in a sense. It's it, it's it, isn't that really what's going on here, Rob? Well, you've got this is an example of government picking winners and losers. Yep. And when the city of Austin divided short-term rentals into different type of categories, they did so that so that they could give preferential treatment to the category that's that's controlled by the quote ruling class here in Austin. And, you know, they could get rid of the, the competition from everyone else. And um, but, No, go ahead. I'm sorry. But even more so than the, the, the infringement on economic opportunity, you also have some just basic infringements on constitutional rights that are represented from this short-term rental ordinance. For example, it goes so far as to say in the city of Austin, it is illegal for more than six people to be outside at a short-term rental. Yes, it's unbelievable. Anytime, day or night, backyard, front yard, having a barbecue, reading a book, if it's more than six of you, you're violating the law here in Austin. You know, you're violating the law here in Austin if you're inside your short-term rental awake after 10 o'clock at night. It, It puts into place a curfew for adults who want to come to Austin and stay at these type of properties and be the the customers of our clients. And somebody's telling me what to do with my house. And also there so that's the you know, ultimately there's a the property rights are imbued in the Constitution and the Fifth Amendment in its own way with that eminent domain clause. And of course the right to assemble and the right in a sense to free speech. I mean what if people just want to go out and have a little conversation? What if they want to have a prayer group outside, Rob? That's out, right? If it's, if it's at the wrong time? At, at night, it would be illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. 
Tell me this. What are you all doing at, at, at the Texas Public Policy? Uh, what are you doing at Texas Public Policy to help Ahmad? Here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, I lead our litigation center, which is called the Center for the American Future. And this is a new venture from the Texas Public Policy Foundation where we have a public interest law firm that exists to represent individuals like Mr. Zatari in defending their rights against oppression from government. And so with our Center for the American Future, we act as the lawyers. And in this situation, representing our clients, including Mr. Zatari, we have sued the city of Austin saying that their short-term rental ordinance is unconstitutional. Well, in in a pre-interview, Ahmad, you had told my producers this. I wanted to read this as a final note. And as a takeaway, we had asked what you'd, what you'd want to tell any fair-minded politician, and this is what you told our producers. It's my house. I'm using it within the law, and the majority shouldn't be able to suppress the minority and take away our constitutional rights. If the U.S. was like that, a lot of people like me wouldn't have moved here. And Ahmad, I couldn't agree more. And Rob, thanks for all the work you're doing representing him. And when you're representing him, you're representing hundreds, if not thousands, of others like him. And thanks for doing what you do over there at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And thanks for taking on this litigation aspect. Too many think tanks think, but we need to fight. And thank you for fighting for Ahmad as well. My privilege to do so. And for any of your listeners that want to know more, AustinPropertyRights.com is a website that has information about it. You heard it. AustinPropertyRights.com. That's the website. This is Lee Habib, Ahmad Satari, and Rob Henneke. And what a story about our property, about this country, the city of Austin. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of the book and blog, Free Range Kids, and we love it. And she's a contributor to Reason.com, another site we adore. And her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. But before that, it's time for Jesse's World. Police in Nashville arrested a man after they caught him in bed with a stolen lingerie store mannequin. Let her go. Look, she's real, I swear. An assistant manager at the Hustler Hollywood store said that she saw the suspect, 55-year-old Christopher Wade, flee with the mannequin just after midnight. The employee said that she argued with the suspect, who was intoxicated, but she could not stop him from tossing the skimpy model into his truck. Police said that the mannequin lost her left arm as Wade fled the scene and that the suspect did not retrieve the arm. The employee told police that the mannequin is worth upwards of $5,000. 
outfit not included. Wade was charged with theft of property. He's in love with a dummy. Police are searching for answers after a burned body was found outside of a Michael's store in Florida Monday morning. Just before 7 a.m., a 911 caller told police that a mannequin was on fire just behind the store. When the fire department arrived, they realized that the mannequin was actually the body of a dead human being. The body was still burning when the fire department arrived. Ohio police say they believe they stopped a man's plotted armed assault on police officers with armed mannequins. Video surveillance shows 51-year-old Timothy Ward posing with one of the mannequins. Police also have several videos that Ward posted online with the mannequins. Police received a tip earlier this month that he was planning to have armed mannequins injure officers and blow up a police station. As the FBI and local agencies began investigating Ward on Tuesday, they searched his home. The chief said agents confiscated several armed mannequins. Ward was arrested on two counts of retaliation and a weapons charge. Police say Ward was released from community supervision last year and that they learned he had recently stopped taking his medication. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I don't even want to ask where and how, Jesse, but good job as always. And now we're going to Lenora Skenazy, and we love to talk about just about everything on this show, as you know, history, sports, love and death, and public policy periodically. But parenting and family, we really love to get into and dig into, and especially when we can hear from the moms, who are usually on the front lines of the parenting wars, and sometimes those wars are just fake. And we're fortunate that the chief warrior for common sense, Lenore Skenazy, joins us now. Lenore, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for that intro. Chief warrior for common sense, I, I like. I like it too. So tell us your personal story and your son's before we dig into the segment. All right. The reason you're talking to me today is because when my um, younger son was nine years old, he asked me and my husband uh, if we would take him someplace he had never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway. Uh, we live here in New York City. We decided yes. One sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's, fancy schmancy department store in a fancy schmancy neighborhood. And I said, okay, today's the day. And I went one way and I left him to figure out the other way, which was in the subway. The subway is right underneath Bloomingdale's. Uh, he had to take the subway down a couple of stops, get out and uh, catch a bus across town. And when he came through the door of our apartment, he was levitating because he was so proud that he had finally been allowed to do something on his own that he felt ready for and that we allowed him to do. And I wrote a column about it and um, ended up on, uh, I can't even remember, the Today Show, CS, what is it, Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, two days later, uh, being described as America's worst mom. And oh. so... That was it. That was the beginning of this uh, crusade, I guess, that has been going on now. He's this, that son is 18, so it's been nine years. Well, congratulations, because, you know, when I was a kid, Lenore, I lived in Bergen County, New Jersey, about 10 miles straight as the crow flies from the George Washington Bridge. And on okay. Saturdays, we would tell our parents at the age of about 11 or 12 that about 10 or 12 of us were going to bike across the bridge, <laughs> go downtown, park our bikes, and tie them up around a Riverside Drive bike stand and go in and have a couple of hot dogs and wander around Central Park. And my parents said, have fun. That was it. They, they let you do that? Okay, because I was just, that reminded me, I'm looking for George Washington Bridge on my site now, which is Free Range Kids. And I'll read you about another guy who went over that bridge. Here it is. Okay, boy 10, bikes 20 miles into New York City. 
Um, this is a guy writing his little autobiography, and he wrote, um, he pedaled 20 miles down unfamiliar roads and busy streets past neighbors and strangers out into the unknown. I didn't need help from anyone. It took me all day, but I found the way, and I did it myself. He crossed over the George Washington Bridge. And he credits that with giving him the, I guess, the confidence and the sort of adventurous spirit that allowed him to go guess where. Where? The moon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just that? Oh. Yeah, just that. That's Buzz Aldrin's uh, autobiography, talking about taking his bike, going over the George Washington Bridge, and going into the city just like you. Well, uh, you haven't gone to the moon, have you? No, I haven't, but you know what? I've always been an adventurer. My parents courted it. They, in fact, insisted on it, and, and every all the parents did. None of them hung around us. They basically mm-hmm. said, go out. We'll see you in 12 hours because we got a life. We got right. a life. We got a life, and you have a life. And what's interesting about it is that they were allowed to do it. I mean, what has taken me over into the policy side of life these days is hearing from so many parents, almost on a daily basis it's become, uh, who are arrested or investigated for letting their kids have any unsupervised time. It's just, it's, it's not allowed, even though our crime rate today is is lower than when Buzz went to the moon. We're back to the crime rate of 1963, yep. which was before color television, before the moon landing, when, when gas was 29 cents a gallon. And when parents were allowed to put you and your friends on their bikes, not even put you on, obviously, just say goodbye, and let you have your adventures. And, and of course, if something untoward happened, you guys had to figure out how to, how to get out of it. If you had a, uh, you know, a flat tire or you got lost, they trusted you to rise to the occasion, and that's something that we're not allowed to trust our kids to do anymore, which is a huge insult to that entire generation. It really is, and and thank you, Lenora, for setting the record straight, because I I read this statistic in this poll the other day that people think New York City is more dangerous than ever, and yet (laughs) simultaneously in 1980-something, I'm not sure if it was 84 or 85, there were 2,000 murders in that city, and this past year there were like 320, making it one of the safest places to be in the world when you account that almost 10 million people live there. Yeah, thank you for saying that because that's true. It <laughs> All is I can true. Say is that people constantly believe that, you know, right, uh, what is it, Roper and Gallup do polls. Uh, all the time, and they ask people, is crime going up or down? And the majority of people always say that it's going up, and they've been wrong since 1993 when it uh, started turning around, and it's been coming down ever since. Well, and having a 24-hour news cycle that just will take any local crime and turn it into a national trend mm-hmm. uh, would allow almost any parent to just be terrified or mortified. To My answer, by the way, always, Lenore, is turn off your TV. Just turn it off. Just, yeah, turn on your radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen to this. So, Lenora, so that this happens, and you become the world's worst mom. Yeah. What was it like sitting on that set of the Today Show? I mean, did you feel? Uh, in, did you know that's what they were going to have you on to discuss? Oh, I was. I was quite surprised. It was my, obviously my first time on the Today Show, and uh, what I didn't realize that they would do is they asked, "Oh, can we have you on?" I said, "Okay," and then, "Could we have your son on?" Sure, that sounds fun. And they said. And we're going to have somebody else there who might want to comment. I was like, okay. But I didn't realize that someone else would be a child psychologist. you got to always worry about them. Um, actually, I don't worry about them. I think there are plenty of wonderful child psychologists. Yep. This is a TV child psychologist. Right. Worry about them. And that she would be sitting on the couch with me. And once I explained what we'd done, and my kids said it was so fun, she said, well, there were safer ways you could have done the same thing, like following him without him knowing it or have him going with a bunch of friends. And uh. I was like, 
that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing, you silly person. And when we come back, hold that thought, Lenore. We're talking to what I believe is one of the world's great moms, combating the world's worst mom tag by simply allowing her kids to do some things on their own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. We're talking to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of a book and blog, Free Range Kids. I love that title. And a contributor to Reason.com. And her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. And we now know why she was called World's Worst Mom. And for so many of us listening, it sounds like it's backwards, of course, uh, that label. And, and we were talking about Lenora when we left off. Just thought this whole idea of risk. In 2006, you, wrote, you said on NPR, 50 kids were abducted and killed in America. The whole country, 50, out of 75 million children. So in other words, Lenore, you're 40 times more likely to die in a car wreck, and yet parents won't leave their kids alone. Right. Well, it always interests me when people say, like, oh, I could never, I could never let my kid walk to school or play outside or you know, walk around the corner even because of the risk. And... I'm not saying that there's no risk. I'm saying that there's very, very little risk. And frankly, there's nothing that carries no risk. And, uh, and yet some things we just see only through the lens of what terrible thing could happen. And, and that, that's, that's what we do when we let our kids have any unsupervised time. But as you just said, as I just said, <laughs> as you just said, that I just said, that <laughs> basically the most risky thing you can do with your child at all in America these days is to put them in the car and drive them anywhere. And we don't, you know, scream at parents who put their kids and drive them to the dentist's office. What are you doing? What do you think about it? How would you feel if your child is dead? You know, you would feel so bad. But we do that whenever any parent lets their kid you know, walk to school or play outside or go on an overnight and it's because we've, all, we've decided that parents are in constant control, and if the parents are with a child all the time, nothing terrible can happen. And the instant that they are not supervising their kid and their kid has a little taste of independence, even walking two blocks to school, that that is foolhardy because what happens if something terrible goes on? Yeah, it's so true. We had on Greg Yip, who's the uh, economics editor for The Wall Street Journal, and we spent about 12 weeks with him because his book, Foolproof, and I think the subtitle is something like how safety makes us uh, less safe and how right, danger right, right. makes us safe. And it, 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 it's very counterintuitive, but he really talks about how, look, you know, if you don't allow your kid to take calculated chances and risks and calculated ones and the parents don't, how will this child be able to be out on his own in the world? How will he develop what I like to call an inoculation against life's ills? Talk about right. that. Um, what's interesting is, though, is even when we start talking about calculated risk, you hear the word risk and it sounds dangerous. You know, risk is inherent in all life. We, yep. we interpret risk as risky. 
Right. And when you do that, then it starts saying, like, well, maybe my kid is ready for risk. I, you never want to send your kid out into real risk. So I, I don't even like using that word. I think it's like, when can you let your kid have a life? And, and the way I try to present it in, in the, the lectures I give is I, I ask the audience to break into little groups of, like, just, you know, three or four people, whoever is sitting near you, and I'll, and I'll ask you to do this if there's anyone in the studio with you now. And, and think about, well, you actually told me this when we first got on, uh, you know, something that you did as a child that you absolutely loved doing that you don't let your own kids do. And once people start thinking that way, it's like, oh, my God, yes, I loved I played in the forest. We made forts or I went to my friend's house. We played outside. We, you know, we did manhunt at night with the streetlights on. You know, people remember all these things so fondly. It's, it is the foundation of who they are, that confident kid with the, you know, with, the, with the communication skills and the imagination to come up with a new game. And to take that away from our kids is to take away something, something so precious. I mean, we're trying to give everything to our kids. We're trying to get them into a good school. We're trying to get them wonderful after-school activities. We're trying to make sure that they have, you know, a good vacation and some happy memories, and yet we're taking away the, the happiest memories from them by saying you can't have any time on your own. That's, that's something that hits people when they start thinking of it that way, when they start realizing, like, wait a minute, I want to give my kid everything. And then I say, and you can give that to your kid because for the same reason that your parents gave that freedom to you. It's not that your parents thought that there was no crime in the world or that nothing could ever go wrong. It's that they, they trusted you, they trusted their community, and um, they recognized the importance of showing, that, showing your kid, I believe in you, go out and play, not I don't think you can handle anything. I'm going to be right next to you all the time. Yeah, I think that's the big one. I think you said it best. I mean, it, 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 my parents conferred tremendous trust in me. And, and they were also saying independence is good. I mean, it's a virtue. And they didn't have to ever say those words because no, they live no, no. those it was, words. It was, it was so obvious. I mean, that's what's so weird. It's like, what calculated risk? Well, let's, you know, contrast that with the entrepreneurial spirit that we we're imbuing in our children with a modicum of freedom. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like, kids, go out and play. And right. we all recognize that that was sort of the normal state of kids, that they'd have some chores and some school and then the rest of the time they had to fill. And there's these two fears that are stalking Americans. One is that you send your kid outside and they'll be you know, kidnapped and murdered. And the other fear is that you send your kid outside and they're not going to get the scholarship in soccer because you yeah. haven't had them in five-day-a-week travel soccer, or they're not <laughs> going to ace their AP U.S. history exam because you haven't had them in AP U.S. history exam extra classes. And... What is ironic is that when I went to the TED Talks and I spoke to the people who were heads of all these fantastic corporations, everything from you know Amazon to Skype, and I asked them about their childhoods, and of course they remembered, oh, you know, we accidentally set my room on fire because yeah. we were making rockets, or I went around, uh, you know, gathering my friends and we would always have a ball game. They did not go to entrepreneur class; they went to play, and that was uh, their training. That's what all kids need is time on their own, figuring out what they're interested in, learning how to focus because they're so fascinated and they want to do, they want to do that thing so much. 
and filling their time, figuring out who they are. Why would we take that away from kids? Yeah, life class, I almost like to call life it. Life class, yeah, and, good. And, and, you know, the structure we're throwing on kids, Lenore, is really, it's distressing. I mean, my, the parents I know all look exhausted because they're ferrying kids around from here to here. Mm-hmm. If they play mm-hmm. baseball, it's extreme baseball. They're playing all year long, mm-hmm. and they're traveling far and wide. Look, I love basketball. My dad gave me a ball, and we had bicycles. And we would leave Little Dumont, New Jersey, and we would get on our bicycles, and we would go to Englewood, and we would play guys from there. Mm-hmm. And then we would drive home. That was it. There were no leagues. There were no super I – mean, it was just you get to high school, you play against the other schools. That's it. Right. On the other hand, I do feel for kids and parents today because – it is hard to find a group of kids playing outside that then can play with another group of kids. So I've, I'm trying to do a couple of things to sort of renormalize kids outside playing with each other. And, and one thing I did is I started something called free, freerangefriend.com where you go in, you put in your zip code, and you can find other people who also want to send their kids outside. I know that sounds a little calculated, but at least you have the same goal in mind, which is having your kids play outside. You don't care what they do. You just want them to go outside. So this is a way to find other kids in the neighborhood whose parents will let them go outside. And um, another thing I'm trying to do is get schools to start the Free Range Kids Project, which is the teachers tell the kids to go home and ask their parents if they can do one thing or another that they feel they're ready to do that for one reason or another they haven't done yet, whether it's walk the dog, make dinner, get themselves to school, you know, pick up their brother from soccer. And because it's endorsed by the school and because it's a one-shot deal, usually the parents, even the parents who've been overprotective, say, okay, yeah, yeah, you can go to the store and get some bread for that project that you're going to get extra credit for. And once the kid leaves the house by themselves and comes back with the bread, which they will do, it changes the parent completely, way more than a discussion by you and me of, you know, whither the entrepreneurial spirit and what are the odds of getting killed by a stranger versus killed in a car crash. Seeing your kid walk through the door elated that you believed in him, that he got to run an errand, that he brought the bed that you're going to eat tonight, that's... That, that changes the parents. The parents are so proud that instead of saying, I'm not letting them do it, I'm too scared, they say, look what my kid can do. And, and so the Free Range Kids Project is simple, free, and transformative. Well, we love the idea. By the way, always be careful of what you ask your kids to ask you. Because my little one, I take her out to L.A. to meet, to visit my dad. And my dad and I always go to Vegas. And we've taught her how to card count and play blackjack. And so she wants to go to Vegas and play blackjack on her own. And I said, look, you got to wait till you're 18, sweetie. Uh, but, you know, keep practicing. Keep practicing. She's 11. Oh, <laughs> so, boy, I think she'd take them by storm. Sounds great. It is great. And, Lenore, thanks for doing this. And we got to make this a, a regular stop. Send us your material. Okay. Um, this is terrific. And, by the way, if we can do one thing and let the parents out there know, A, it's okay to be thinking what we're thinking, and then let's get together because maybe we can just bring at least our own lives back to normal by meeting those parents who want to get our kids together and go off into the woods and play for a few hours. So maybe we could have a martini and talk, talk about adult things without our kids hovering around us every nanosecond. Now, this is Lee Habib, and we've had on Lenora Skenazy for the last two segments and hopefully many more times. And we're talking about kids, and we're talking about parents, and we're talking about independence and why in some ways this culture is not engendering it. More after these messages. 